Welcome to the second season of Prescription for Better Access podcast. I'm Mark Hansen. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Scott Howe, where we ask our guest, what is their prescription for better access? All views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Well, Scott, welcome to episode 15. You know, we talked about this year is going to be a year of looking at innovations and things that can make a difference for access and affordability. And we have another headline grabbing topic with biosimilars. Yeah. Hey, Mark, I agree. This could be a big one. It certainly was intended to be a big one. And as you know, over the last year or so, we've actually had biosimilars for some of the largest selling biologics hit the market, but it isn't all going as expected. And so we've got to explore a a lot today with our guests. Well, we have two great guests, and the first is Dr. Jason Schaffrin. He's the Senior Managing Director for FTI Consulting. In their Center for Health Economics and Policy, Jason's also the founder and editor of Healthcare Economist blog and an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California and has published many articles about biosimilars. So we're thrilled to have Jason on on the show. We also have joining us Marina Allen, Senior Vice President with Finger Paint Market Access for over two decades. Marina has been with manufacturers, including Coherus and Allergan, where she led patient access and reimbursement programs. Marina has helped to launch numerous biosimilars in patient access and reimbursement and brings a depth of knowledge in this space. So we're thrilled to have Marina as well. So Jason, Marina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Good. Well, welcome, guys. Let me just add my welcome to both of you. And, And why don't we just dive right in? Jason, if we could, I'm going to start with you a little bit and just remind us a bit about some context here. Can you go back and reinform us about the original enabling regulations for biosimilars? When did that happen? Why was it an important event? And uh, given all the launches recently and that have happened over time, is it in fact working the way it was originally intended or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I think going you know, way back in time it's interesting, uh, usually the U.S. is kind of ahead of Europe, but in this case with biosimilars, actually Europe was ahead. The first biosimilar in Europe was approved in 2005. The first biosimilar in the U.S. was approved in 2015, so about 10 years later, and that was due to the, in 2009, the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act passed to allow the biosimilars. So if you think, you know, in the U.S., we're actually about 10 years behind Europe in terms of that experience. Also, I think, you know, the importance of biosimilars, uh, mentioned Scott, is really becoming more and more important. You go kind of prior to 2015, usually like the number of biologics approved was two or four or five every year. Between 2015 and 2021, there were 13 biologics approved per year on average. And then last year, there were about 20 biologics approved. So kind of where this was more of a niche subject, hey, there's a couple biologics, you know, let's try to see if we can get to biosimilars. Now it's closer to, you know, 30, 40% of all FDA approvals are in biologics. So we really need to, to get this right. So do you have a perspective on how it's going so far? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, my own research, I I think has found a couple of issues, you know, one certainly is, is I think you, you look at small molecules, you see that as soon as kind of the loss of exclusivity occurs, you have, you know, a number of you know, generics entering the market, the prices fall, you know, 90% or more after you get two, three, four entrants. And, and that's been, you know, really successful. For biosimilars, that's less so the case. A couple issues, you know, one, the price reduction is, is not typically been 
as large. Biosimilars are more expensive to manufacture than just small molecules, so that makes sense, but they haven't seen really large increases. Part of that is very large price decreases. Part of that just because could be because there's previously was a smaller volume of products. Now that's changing and you do see some of the price decreases are occurring a bit more. And then the other one is, is the uptake of biosimilars. So although there's a potential, are people actually using it? And actually in, in some of my research, we this was using data a few years ago, but we found that for some drugs, for uh, one case for EPO, the uptake biosimilars was, you know, above 80%. So, wow, okay, that seemed pretty pretty successful. For other ones, uh, like for infliximab, the biosimilar uptake was less than 5% after a year. So, although, hey, this is a potential reduced prices, if people aren't actually using them, that's obviously a huge challenge. So, a lot of potential, but a lot that's not been realized. Well, before we get to Marina, I want to get to ask you a question. But Jason, you mentioned that the Europe is about ten years ahead, or at least they were in, in terms of the initial approval. What are you seeing in terms of product adoption over there now since they launched their first in two thousand and five? I mean, what does it look like in Europe versus the U.S.? I mean, I think it's been a bit more successful. Certainly, I don't have any specific statistics to compare it, but but I do think, and we can kind of talk about some of the institutional barriers. I think in Europe, you know, a lot of times the payer is kind of the ultimate payer or, or the person who's making the decision will be, you know, the physician, but the payers will have a, a large role in that. In the U.S. side, there's a lot of intermediaries that's, uh, you know, somewhat problematic. We can certainly talk about that later that there's PBMs, you know, hospitals may be making those decisions. And so some of the incentives there are, are problematic versus, although I'm not, you know, an advocate for that single payer systems are the solutions to everything. If there's fewer intermediaries in this case, that does help a bit for the biosimilar uptake. Well, that's a great lead into Marina. So you've launched uh, many biosimilar products into the market. What are you seeing from your perspective? And, and in particular, do you see like a, a difference in the maybe the PBM benefit biosimilar versus maybe a medical benefit biosimilar? Absolutely. There's no doubt a difference between a medical benefit product and a pharmacy benefit product that you see launched to the biosimilar space. They really are taking on the same approach that you see the branded originator products taking on, but it just depends, right? So for a medical benefit product, it's more of a provider approach. They do contracting with the provider offices, as you would see with the originator products as well. With the PBM, the physician benefits, you see more of a payer play. And that's where they're taking on the approach to go to the payers, PBMs, and they're going for those rebates. The the problem is is we're not just getting we're not getting the uptake in payer coverage that we're looking for. If there's no payer coverage, then it's really hard for the physicians to be writing for these products, whether or not they are physician administered and they're able to inject or infuse the products to the patient and get reimbursed or just write a prescription to the pharmacy and it's not covered. So there has been an issue with payer coverage, definitely in the launches that I've dealt with where, you know, out the gates, they just don't have the coverage. And so the uptake isn't there that you would think. And patients are the ones that are actually losing because they're not getting the lower cost that we were hoping for. I want to get to the patients in, in a little bit more detail in just a minute. 
but what could be done to improve payer acceptance or what what from your perspective are you seeing some of your clients or other strategies that could potentially help to make a dent on payer acceptance? Well, you see that, I mean, it's already happening. There's starting to be a mandate for Medicare Advantage plans to really take on biosimilars. So that is starting to happen. You see employer groups that are wanting lower costs for patients as well. So there's there's some changes there too. But there still needs to be a lot done for payer acceptance because really what you're finding is a lot of these payers are still contracting with the bigger manufacturers and they're really going for those rebates in a portfolio type position. So you're still not seeing an uptake with a lot of the biosimilars that are out there unless they're a bigger manufacturer. So it started to happen. You're seeing the mandates that come out there, but What's coming about with that as well is you're seeing a little bit of white labeling that's and partnering with these P, these larger PBMs and larger manufacturers. And Jason, what she mentioned, the payer strategy, she mentioned pricing, she mentioned Medicare Advantage. What's your perspective on the pricing and the market access sort of acceptance and strategies of biosimilars? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, if you think about kind of in, in most markets, you know, people want low prices and, and, you know, if things are identical, you go for the low, low price product. As Miriam mentioned, you know, with the PBMs, you know, that may be less the case. They, you know, make money for the, a lot of the larger ones as a percent of rebates. So they may prefer higher price products with rebates and discounts. There have been some products that have been launched and some of the Humira biosimilars that look at that offer like identical products one is you know higher price but you know will be have rebates to a similar cost and one is just low cost and and to be honest most of the the uptake for the larger pbms has been with the higher price products that then you can get rebates for so i think when there's these kind of structural issues that's certainly a problem another issue and marina was mentioning on the medical side is the 340b program the 340B program sounds like a really beneficial program. It's supposed to help providers that serve disadvantaged communities by giving them discounted drugs. And while that sounds good, you know, it'd be much better to just have, you know, the actual patients who are disadvantaged pay less. And what the, the reason is, is what this does, the hospitals get reimbursed the same amount for the drug, they just pay less. So there's a spread and that spread is larger for higher cost drugs. So if you could pay, use a lower cost biosimilar, you're going to make less money than if you have a higher cost biologic. So you have these kind of structural challenges that, you know, although if you're an individual biosimilar manufacturer, you know, there are some strategies, but there are kind of institutional barriers for biosimilars to have uptake, namely, you know, the, the focus on rebates for PBMs and the 340B incentivizes the providers to use higher cost products, um, which is kind of counterintuitive when you're supposed to be treating a disadvantaged uh, population. Yeah, another example of the complicated nature of our of our system, I guess. So let's do turn a little bit to the patient's perspective a little bit. Marina, can you help us understand what's going on with the patient out-of-pocket costs or co-pays for these kinds of medicines? Absolutely. As Jason referred to earlier, you know, the the pricing for these biosimilars wasn't what it was expected to be, where it'd be a much lower price than the originator products, right? You see 
these products coming out at 5% lower than, than the WAC for these products. So the out-of-pocket expense for these patients isn't truly the out-of-pocket expense that was hoped that you see with the generics, right? And so the manufacturers are really having to put together programs, copay programs, financial assistance to help off these out-of-pocket expenses that these patients are incurring as well. And it really is the patient that's the government-paid patient that's the one that's at a loss because none of these programs they can really do for those patients as well. So, I mean, that is part of why the government is mandating biosimilars to be added to more of their Medicare Advantage plans so that they can provide biosimilars at a low, a bit of a lower cost. And part of why you'll see these biosimilars coming out with a lower WAC cost as well to, to help with these out-of-pocket costs for more of these employer groups or the payers that actually do care more about the, the patient's out-of-pocket costs versus their rebates. But initially, yeah. it really was projected it to be more of like a 47% decrease in out-of-patient, out-of-pocket costs for patients. But you're really just not seeing that. And the offset there is where the manufacturers are having to put together these financial assistance programs that really are mirroring the originator drug pro branded programs yeah. to offset that cost. Yeah. So, uh, so clearly a, a missed opportunity for patients in many respects. And Jason, turning to you, any thoughts on ways that we could improve that? Yeah, I mean, I think we certainly can learn from the generic market. If, if you know, the point of the cost sharing is if you're going to pick a more expensive product, okay, you should, maybe you need it, but, you know, you should kick in a little bit more. But if you're picking a biosimilar, you're picking a lower cost option, you know, in most cases. So you're really just kind of, it's just a transfer from the patients to the payers. It's not kind of putting the right incentives in place, right? If you say for diabetes, you know, hey, why don't you try metformin first? If it doesn't work, you know, okay, fine. But, you know, if you want to try something else besides metformin first, you got to pay a little bit more. Okay, that seems reasonable. If you're saying, hey, I'm already going to use the biosimilar. Well, you know, you're, you've, as a patient, already made kind of the low cost choice. You really shouldn't be, be penalizing them in terms of higher cost sharing, because you'd like to, you know, assuming that, you know, they need the treatment, there's no reason that that's really just a, a pure shift in cost. It's not making, having the right incentives, obviously can impact adherence, all those problems with kind of higher uh, cost sharing. So I think, you know, if you do pick a biosimilar, there should be kind of a tier for that. And, you know, you should be able to have, you know, limited cost sharing. And if I could just add to that, if I may, the Medicare fee-for-service patients, when it is a true medical buy-and-bill product, you know, it's a medical benefit, not a pharmacy benefit, they're the ones at the, the most loss, right? Because that 20%, these are still expensive drugs because they're biologics, that 20% that they owe, there's there's not much the manufacturers can do for CMS guidelines to take care of those patients. And they're the ones that really are losing in this. And, and if there's something that can be done for those patients, I think that would be a win for biosimilars. And I think to, to build on to, to Marina's point, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to eventually cap the out-of-pocket costs for Part D uh, once you kind of hit a max. But for the medical, you still, you know, that, that's still an issue. You're not capped. And, you know, that's going to be kind of increase the disparity of the out-of-pocket costs, depending on if it's a medical or, or pharmacy for medical. 
I was just going to say that in the sort of the chemical pharma world, it's going as it should. In the biosimilar world, it's not going as you would expect, right? And it seems like, again, the patients are the one to, to pay the price, right? So, which is unfortunate. But if we could sort of, Maureen, if I could turn to you to sort of go back to this whole concept of what it takes to launch, right? Because a biosimilar now is not like launching a generic in the, on the pharma side. So what is sort of the commercial model for, for biosimilars? I mean, do you, you mentioned launching a brand is now sort of done a certain way in the biologic space, and now you're launching biosimilars. So what do you have to do to, to keep up on the biosimilar side? Yeah, it's an interesting play with biosimilars, completely different than generics, right? When biosimilars first came out, they definitely were not successful at all. When they started really branding biosimilars and commercializing them truly as a brand, and, and honestly, some of these biosimilar brands out there, there's it's hard for any patient or physician's office to even know the difference whether or not it's a biosimilar or an actually true brand because they brand it with its own name and then utilizing the unbranded form with it. You are seeing some unbranded versions of biosimilars coming out with a different strategy. But typically, those are coming out as a branded strategy where they are coming out just as uh, the originator comes out with a branded form. So they have field teams with full sales, marketing, FRM teams, which are field reimbursement management teams, your scientific liaison teams, nursing programs that we've helped build for these programs. Uh, it really depends on whether or not it's a medical benefit product that has more reimbursement obstacles for them to, to deal with. So you have larger field reimbursement teams or what have you that back it up, or if it's more of a pharmacy benefit drug. But they're still launching with hub programs that are reimbursement services and, and patient support programs like your copay programs, your free drug programs that are coming out there that really are mirroring branded products that are coming out there and launching and really mirroring the originator products as well. And there's so many competitors out there. I mean, there's so many biosimilars per molecule and class that it's a pay to play position for them really to stay at par. They all got to come out and commercialize and be a branded product. And now you're starting to see other strategies come into play with, with them coming out with an unbranded version as well. It just depends on whether doing, they're doing the payer play or the provider play, honestly. Well, I think, and if I could to turn to Jason, because on the commercial side, we've seen some manufacturers try to do it both ways with two prices, right? As you mentioned. So help us understand what you're seeing from your perspective around the sort of the commercial model. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the issue really is, you know, who's making the decision maker, as kind of Marina mentioned, is it, you know, the, the provider, is it the, you know, payers and employer, I think if you're, as you're, you know, able to more kind of get to the ultimate people who are paying, if that's employers, then, you know, the biosimilars certainly will have more success. I think for some of the PBMs that are not the largest ones, but maybe some of the smaller or middle ones that are paid more based on, you know, per claim process or those things not based on rebates, you know, they'd be more interested in biosimilars, you know, they don't make the money off the rebates. So that, you know, that's kind of an incentive aligned. So I think you do have a lot of variability, but you still have the challenge of the, the bigger PBMs are do, do still focus a lot on the rebates and, and incentivizing there. 
I think, you know, there is kind of a broader trend with the biologics to put up kind of more barriers to accessing specialty pharma products, whether that's kind of brown bagging where patients have to bring their medicines for physicians to administer, if it's white bagging where, you know, the pharmacy would send it to the physicians and they have to give it to that specific patient. So ideally, you know, you would be able to bypass those types of barriers for biosimilars because you're picking a lower cost option. But again, that, uh, as Marina said, they're kind of branded like products and there may be kind of branded type administration and logistical costs applied to them as well. So um, we're definitely not at the easy access, low cost, no problem phase. Low coverage, payer contracts are an issue, portfolio bundling, still contracting with the larger manufacturers where it's harder for these smaller biosimilar manufacturers to get coverage. Well, okay. Fascinating. (laughs) Well, I'm going to, I want to take us in a slightly different direction here for a moment. As a former physician, I'm, I'm fascinated to understand how the biosimilars are impacting them. So Jason, why don't we start with you? Have you seen any activities that the healthcare providers themselves have undertaken to try to ensure that biosimilars are being integrated into the patient treatment plans? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been certainly a challenge. I think that, you know, you want to get your patient a good product and you want to make sure they're able to pay for it. And I think, you know, the, the thought of, okay, hey, you know, a lot of times, hey, here's drug X, here's just a generic version, it'll be covered by insurance, great, you know, no problem, This this will help. I know my patient will be more adherent if the out-of-pocket costs are lower. So, so that's great. So I think the analogy would be, okay, well, let's, you know, that kind of mental process where physicians have a, you know, one or two drugs that they'll prefer for a specific thing. And let's see if there's a generic available or, you know, work with the, the kind of patient's insurance or your kind of office manager on which one is, is, is best. Like, you know, I think mentally physicians are there, but when you go to the biologics, well, actually, the, the, as Marina said, like the, the biosimilar isn't like really that much lower cost. And, you know, I still have to go through kind of like all the hassles to get them there. So like, I think there is like the, the mental and the process, like physicians are very used to at this point, hey, let me get, get the patient a product that works, that they can afford, that'll be you know, easy to get through insurance. And, you know, for small molecules, let's do that with generics. It's easy, like that works all the time. With biosimilars, though, that, you know, that thought process is the same. But again, the cost sharing isn't going to make as big a difference in a lot of cases. There's still, you know, maybe a, a lot of kind of insurance stuff to deal with. So I think although they're like, it's, it's not a hard leap for physicians, like they're, they're much more used to that, you know, now than 20, 30 years ago. But the kind of gain is, is much smaller currently. So I think you definitely don't see as much kind of effort to push people to the biosimilars as you would for a generic, again, you know, for the patient's sake. And then, as I mentioned earlier, if you're part of like a larger healthcare system, maybe you're actually incentivized, like, well, let's prescribe the more expensive one because we get a bigger, you know, we get more of a discount, we get, we make more money off of that. So, you know, I'll, I think there is a clear opportunity. I don't think like physicians could be, would be the barriers, but as constructed, doesn't really happen. And for the 340B hospitals, they're actually incentivized to do the exact opposite. So I think that's been a a big challenge. Fascinating. It's interesting to hear that the physicians are 
sort of there clinically and they're thinking about these things, but that the system doesn't support it, actually. It, it interferes. Marina, in your experience, what's been the physician response to the launches you've managed? Well, that really depends on the type of benefit, right? If it's a medical benefit or pharmacy benefit, again, like I was speaking to earlier, if it is a medical benefit, physician-administered drug, and they have to get reimbursed by the payer, you know, they want to ensure they're going to get reimbursed. They need to make sure that there is true coverage. And let's be real, it's it's the ease of access for them. You literally will have offices that will choose a product based on how easy it is to get through their patient support program to either, you know, get it get it authorized to get the financial assistance for the patient. I mean, there's true just financial assistance coordinators out there with all different types of names that will make sure that they choose a drug based on the ease of access where an office will even just say, okay, we want to provide this drug, but if, if there's another one that's a biosimilar or whatever that's easier to get, then they'll go that route. It's not always the thought of what's for the patient, right? It, they have these contracts with these provider offices too. And I think that was the biggest shock to me when I entered this part of the market with all the, the provider contracts. And, you know, your larger facilities, your larger clinics, I mean, if you're in oncology space, uh, contracting with these oncology offices is a big play. And the larger volume offices are going to get the better contracts, so they get the better reimbursement. So they literally are going to be able to choose their product based on how they're going to get paid by the payer. On the pharmacy benefit side, that's that's different, right? That that is, it's not the provider's office that is getting incentivized based on which product they choose for the patient. And so, it, again, it's going to be ease of access for the patient and getting them the treatment that they need and and what they're used to, quite honestly. And so, if there's any access hurdles to even get it approved, they're going to try and go with what's easiest and as this is kind of the mantra throughout this this whole dialogue today is is the payer coverage just hasn't been there for the biosimilars so with with a lot of these launches it's it's a slow uptake i mean you're seeing these these manufacturers have to literally give out free drug for until they get payer coverage if if i could just follow up with marina on that because or just somewhat a slight from physicians i just want to talk a little bit about the distribution because you mentioned you know, well, first, Jason mentioned the intermediaries in the U.S. versus Europe. You mentioned the need to have sort of a range of services and solutions to support a biosimilar, similar to what a brand does. Is the same sort of challenges or strategies with distributing this product, the biosimilars, do you see in the same terms of related to especially, pharmacy, especially pharmacies and distributors? And what are you seeing in terms of actually getting the product itself out into the market? Yeah, it, just, it depends on what their model is, you know, if they're going, a lot of them are doing an open network model rather than going with a closed network so that they can keep their, it open. It, it But it really, it, again, it really falls to their payer coverage. I haven't seen a distribu- distribution issue so much other than maybe some of the specialty pharmacies that are linked to these PBMs, right? So I guess that's a good thing. So that's one, that's one area that seems to be... <laughs> doesn't have the mountain of challenges some of the other areas do with biosimilars. So so that's encouraging. 
There's something else that, that more of the physician practices don't know about. That's a very small market that I find very interesting. And these are the distributive, disruptive channels for, for patients that are more these cash patients because these are expensive drugs. And there's some options out there, Mark Cuban, GoodRx, BlinkHealth. There's some options out there for them to pay cash and in some instances even pay lower than the actual price of the product rather than going through their payer. So I think that's an interesting situation that's happening and something to be watched. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be something if, uh, you know, we had to stand up the, the whole new telemedicine, just, you know, direct distribution model for patients to enable biosimilars of all things. But uh, yeah, so, all right. All right, well, let's, let's look forward a little bit then. Obviously, there's mixed success here. There's some success, but also some remaining challenges. Let's, but let's look ahead to 2025 and beyond. Any trends emerging in the biosimilar market that might shape the future healthcare costs and delivery in the next decade or so? As Jason, as you pointed out, more and more of the approvals coming through the FDA have been biologics. More and more of the spending is on biologics. If we're to achieve the savings that then can be repurposed into future in- spending on future innovation products, then we need to figure this out somehow. So how might this evolve? Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, the uh, I, I think kind of like if you looked five or 10 years ago, the biosimilars were, were a huge disappointment. I think now it's gaining some steam. There is some progress, again, because there's so many more biologics, they're starting to go you know, loss of exclusivity, then you kind of get, can get more scale with the biosimilar manufacturers. You have some, you know, very large products like Humira that have biosimilar. So I think kind of that market has increased. I think on the kind of converse side is you have a lot of kind of proposals for, for government policies to reduce prices for biologics, whether that's the Inflation Reduction Act at the federal level that kind of mandates negotiation after 13 years for biologics, or if it's prescription drug affordability boards. And while kind of as a whole, like the goal is to kind of push down the prices, if you push down the prices of the original biologic, you know, there may not be a market for biosimilars because you may push it down too much. What's the point of, of switching around? So that certainly is a challenge, you know, in the U.S. kind of what's traditionally happened is, you know, you'll pay a fair amount of for kind of branded products. The goal of that is, you know, to incentivize innovation. They'll be expensive, but your insurance should cover most of that. And then eventually after some years, you're going to get really low cost versions. If you have kind of the top down, the, the risk is, okay, well, is the price you know, kind of too high, then, well, maybe we could have actually set it lower if we had kind of a biosimilar competition, or is it too low? And then, okay, although you save some money, now you've driven out all the biosimilar manufacturers, you just have one kind of biologic and you're in the same spot. So I think I, there's kind of like the drug pricing discussion, which is a whole separate thing, but ideally you'd be kind of pushing to have more biosimilars because that's going to solve your problem. You've already kind of paid for the innovation piece. Now we want to have some competition to push the prices down. Although it seems odd to say, well, the government pushing prices down could be counterproductive. In this case, it could actually be the case. So um, that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, thanks. And Marina, as, as you look forward into the future, do you see anything happening with the manufacturers where they may 
be rethinking or innovating the commercial models that relates to this? Or do you think we're going to continue to have mostly this kind of mini brand kind of launches? I see that they will continue in the mini brand type of launches. I mean, you are seeing them unbranding it as well, uh, where they are marketing it differently to like employer groups and such. So they are taking a two branded approach, if you will, branded and unbranded. But until the payer coverage gets there, you know, I just really hope that they're spending millions of dollars to be putting these products out there and they're launching with little payer coverage. And if if some of the guidelines don't change that really helps biosimilars to live within this space, you know, for example, in the medical benefit space, these products all come out, they keep lo- having to lower and lower the price because it's a pricing war. And then the ASP keeps dropping, which is the average sales price and the reimbursement that they're they're getting. And then after a couple of years, it's just like <laughs> it's it's bottoming out and these manufacturers are going to want to get out. So I hope that they do change more. I don't see them changing it from a commercial branded approach until the ease of access gets better. Because like I said earlier, these offices are going to choose the products that have an ease of access. And if they still have to go through all the reimbursement hurdles that they have to go through to get access to these products, they are going to have to take a branded approach to provide all these type of programs and financial assistance to help out. And then, you know, at some point they might bottom out because they're, I mean, you're seeing some of these rebates and contracts with these payers where they're asking 95% rebate, right? At what point, what are these manufacturers actually making? (laughs) So that's where it gets scary to me, I think. Well, first of all, thank you both for for a great, great discussion, great insights. Before we finish, I get the pleasure to ask you all, both of you, our, our, our favorite question of the day, which is the theme of our podcast. And that is, if you could have a magic wand and literally wave it and make, make things all better, what would your prescription for better access be? And Jason, let's start with you. Yeah, so I think I would have a, a three kind of pronged approach. Um, you know, the first one would you know really be to to get rid of the the 340B. You care about you know helping disadvantaged patients. There are ways to do that, lowering copays, you know, et cetera, rather than just giving kind of big discounts. which really create perverse incentives that you're you're actually you know incentivizing them to to prescribe high cost things. So so that's kind of number one. Number two, I think, you know, some type of, you know, PBM reform that, you know, we really want to push them to focus on the prices and and biosimilars and and really get away from the rebates. You know, with branded products, you can do what you want, but, you know, with with the biosimilars, you want to kind of incentivize people to use the lower cost options. And I think kind of the rebate system is, is a bit problematic there. And then I think third is I would you know, for the biosimilars, you know, really limit kind of the top-down pricing. You know, most markets, you get a good price on most goods and services, and that's because there's competition. You know, for drugs, you have to look at value-based purchasing to balance incentives for innovation and, you know, obviously prices. But once you kind of hit the biosimilar, once the loss of exclusivity, you want to bring in as many competitors as possible, and then you'll balance out kind of the price and, and et cetera. And, and so pushing the first two parts, you know, help will help kind of make more biosimilars available, you know, push down the price. And I think we don't want to have a top-down approach for either setting the price too low, that drives out all the biosimilars, or too high, where you could have had more savings if you just incentivize more 
biosimilar manufacturers to enter. So those would be my three-pronged uh, prescription for better access. Great. And Marina? Well, lift access barriers and decrease time to treatment, right? And there's multiple things to do. If I was to ask for some better ways to do the things, better integrations with payers. You know, you have those integrations on the pharmacy side, not on the medical side. And maybe that's for a reason to make it harder to get approvals. You know, NCPDP transactions where they are able to get that quick real-time response to get an approval for a drug. What the... The reimbursement barriers that offices have to go through for a medical buy and bill product is a lot. I mean, they have to have a lot of staff on board. They have to hire FTE just to get access to these products. So if we could have more ease of access where quicker time to treatment, integrations with the payers, maybe one portal versus all the plethora of portals that are out there. You've got every payer portal. You've got manufacturer portals. Maybe integrate everything into the EHR system where it's all within the physician workflow and it's done and they're able to prescribe like they want to and the patient can get the drug right away. That would be nice. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. And thank you both. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Marina, for joining us. And if you don't mind bearing with Scott and I, we we do every every episode, we do a wrap-up on key lessons learned. And uh, Scott, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll be happy to take a stab, Mark. I think I have, based on today's conversation, I've got a new top example of the dysfunction of our current system for drug pricing and access in the U.S. This is amazing, isn't it? But it's, but, you know, jokes apart, it's obviously very important as well. If you look at the amount of spending, again, on biologic medicines and the the medicines that are going generic or losing patent protection now and, and say through 2030, there's a lot of drug spending there that the system is kind of counting on declining in order to make space for, you know, spending on new, new innovation. So it is important to get this right. I'm amazed again by the distortion created by the supremacy of the rebate resulting in higher than expected biosimilar prices. And in some cases, you know, a high, low, combo um, strategy with two prices. And even with all that, you know, still limited formulary uptakes for the new biosimilars then resulting in mandates from government, you know, for coverage of certain segments of payers. I mean, it's just, you know, nuttiness piling on. Additional distortions we heard about from the, in the buy and bill world as well, and, and including the 340B program, which is amazing. The patient cost shares are still too high, you know, in part related to all of this. And there's still too many formula exclusions and prior authorization, as, as we heard. So like all of the things that you would hope would happen with substitution of lower cost medicines, patient cost shares, you know, going down and the administrative hurdles declining, you know, just aren't really happening the way we expected here. And now, you know, the IRA with their, you know, price negotiation may, you know, undermine the Medicare portion of of segment of this of this business. So yeah, completely changes the incentives for the manufacturers. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's important to get right. We clearly, you know, there's been some progress made, but you know, we clearly don't have it all right yet. And it's and so we can't give up. We got to keep keep trying. That's sort of my takeaway, which is that in the in the big picture, I'm in, again incredibly hopeful, right? Because biosimilars are a tool to help us achieve that improved access and affordability. 
right? And and that's something to be excited about. You and I were both chuckling as they went through the mountain of challenges that are there because you and I have heard this for the past year plus now. But again, those mountain of challenges then create a need for expertise and, and challenges or consultants and others to help sort of navigate these problems and at least in the US market. And so, but I'm not going to under undersell the the magnitude of those of those challenges, right? As you just summed up so well, and I'm not I think I'm not going to re- I'm not going to repeat it. I'll just say I'll echo the key points you brought up. I do want to highlight again just another topic that came across which is 340B reform. You know, what a it's just it just doesn't make sense that we have a, a legislation that's intended for good that, in fact, only increases our cost because hospitals make more money off of the branded drug versus the biosimilar. And then our final point, which I'll, I'll, we always come back to, which is the patients, you know, and and they're the ones who, on the generic pharma side, have access to very low cost medicines and they're benefiting from it. But on the biosimilar side, they're still picking up the cost and they're still picking up the tab recent studies about the number of of Americans in this country that are bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy or have such large medical debt. And this is another example of how we're just piling on patients instead of starting to make their lives a a little bit easier. So a lot I I know we can still continue to do for for patients. So, All right. We're going to give the program overall for biosimilars a partially meets expectations and invite Marina and Jason back a year or so from now to see if we're doing better. There we go. There we go. Well, I think we. the good news is we there are experts like them that are out there that are making a case, hopefully our episode. And let me just wrap up again by thanking Jason and Marina for joining us, sharing their expertise and their insights. And thank you again to my wonderful co-host, Scott Howe, for his expertise as well and joining us in thoughts. And then one final commercial for our podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're, we're thrilled that our numbers continue to go up. We still remain in the top 25% of all podcasts nationwide. So continue to grow our, our audience base. And some of the things that were just talked about in today's episode, as well as links to Jason and Marina, if you'd like to reach out to them individually, we will put inside of our show notes and, and, and notes about the episode. So with that, welcome to another episode of Prescription for Better Access. To listen to future episodes, subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like today's episode, please leave us a review. Or if you have topics you would like us to cover, please send an email to comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you.